Welcome back to the Chelsea Overseas Podcast. We're now on episode 8. We'll be recapping Canada's international window against Qatar and Uruguay. And we'll be previewing Chelsea's upcoming matches against Crystal Palace and AC Milan in the Champions League. So, let's start off with the Canada men's national team. First game against Qatar, a 2-0 comfortable victory for Canada. I'm impressed by how fast Canada really started match despite Qatar having you know more preparation with the squad what do you think Adam yeah I, I was quite impressed too Qatar kind of plays like a club team and are preparing for the World Cup by by playing a lot of games even outside the international windows against other youth international teams against some club teams so You know, and even John Herdman kind of alluded to it when saying it may take Canada a little bit to grow into this match. But obviously that that wasn't quite the case with the fast start from Canada. And I was impressed by how quickly they adapted against the non-CONCACAF opposition and started the game really, really, really well. And obviously got those two goals really quickly. Yeah, and I think one of those things is the fact that Canada was really able to break down the really deep Qatar defense. So how were they able to do that? Yeah, I think one of the things that I highlighted very early on watching the game and what I thought of was how high those center backs were playing for Canada. Canada went to that 3-4-3 and Alistair Johnston and Kamal Miller were on the left and right at the back three with Vittoria between them, but they were very much encouraged to get forward and create overloads in wider areas with those wing backs. And if you kind of go back to both goals, you'll see the threat that it causes. On the first one, Alistair Johnston gets forward and then gets the ball out to Hoylett and then drags a defender out. He makes a run and drags a defender out of position. Hoylett's able to come inside feed the ball into Davies, and then Davies around to Adekube, and then Adekube sends the ball in for Kyle Lahren. On the second one, it's very simple. Kyle Lahren, or sorry, Kamal Miller, gets high on that left-hand side and puts a dangerous ball in, which Jonathan David eventually finishes. So it, it, it overloaded those wider areas and opened up avenues for Canada in their attack. And also, it's also key to when that happens, when those center backs do advance higher up the pitch. You did see Stefan Estacchio and Samuel Piet in midfield, who I felt had a great game in midfield with and without the ball. They kind of dropped in to cover those positions and keep the shape and make sure that Canada wouldn't then be hit on the counter because those center backs played very high up the pitch. And also the front three, the combination play from Davies, David Lahren was was really, really good. Uh, all game. Yeah, speaking of Kyle Lahren, um, he got on the score sheet today, and it's, I think it's a really important goal. But let's kind of we have to emphasize how important was it for him to get on the score sheet. And some people might say he deserved a couple more goals. Yeah, I think it was really important. He's obviously struggling a bit to get in the t- in the team at Club Bruges. So I think some sometimes you go on international break and and you 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 get a few goals and that gets you back on track. So hopefully that's the case for Kyle, but it was much needed for Kyle Laren. And hopefully 
with a bit of confidence. He's played two consecutive matches in this international window, played well, and hopefully when he goes back to Belgium, he can get a start and, and find his way back into the the team because it is a bit of a concern for John Herdman if he's not not playing. So yeah, that was really important. I think I think definitely Canada could have scored more. They scored those two goals quite early on in the kind of first half of the first half. And they, they could have added more. I think Canada continued to be a real threat and caused so many problems for Qatar. But they just lacked a, a bit of the finishing to to get that third goal and then fourth goal. And uh, Kamal Miller, I have no clue how he missed the chance on, on the set piece. But Canada could have scored more. I think they slowed down at probably when the subs happened. Around the 65th to 70th minute, they slowed down a bit. But they were very comfortable up 2-0. They controlled the game throughout. And uh, defensively, a lot of their pressing was really, really good. And they maintained the shape. And even, you know, Canada threw a lot of bodies forward. And those center backs did get high. So even when Qatar were able to find a few moments in transition, the recovery runs from the midfield was really good to make sure that Qatar couldn't create chances. And the back three were were quite comfortable uh, also defensively. So I think you have to give Canada a lot of credit for how quickly they adapted to kind of a non-CONCACAF environment. I think they controlled things. I think with and without the ball, they were the much better team. And it was well-deserved and, and great preparation for Qatar. Yeah, big shout-out to the Canadian national team, you know, putting really putting out a wonderful performance. We were watching the game together, and we were like, man, they really deserve to be at least 3-0, 4-0 up. And as, as well as they play it, one thing for me is that they need to be able to finish those chances that could put you even in a more comfortable position, right? When you're playing, you know, teams like Belgium and the Croatias, they're going to exploit your defense or those just those little slip-ups a lot harder than Qatar will. So hopefully the finishing can be improved just a little bit, but I think they put up a really well, well-fought performance. But now, speaking of well-fought performances, the game against Uruguay, a 2-0 defeat, but I think there's a lot of takeaways here. The first thing being, it was, it was a kind of rough start for Canada, um, despite the contrary, where in Qatar, they actually had a really good start. So what are, the, what are some of the lessons that Canada learned from the opening quarter of the match? Yeah, I, I think Canada were taught a few lessons here. And, and I think they needed these lessons uh, against a tier one opponent, as Herdman likes to say, in Uruguay. But I think what Canada struggled a bit with in, in the opening sort of quarter of the match was I think they really struggled with Uruguay's transition that is some of the that is the highest tempo attack Canada's played against in a while like the quality difference between some of Uruguay's counter-attacking moments and how quickly they played through Canada's midfield it's unlike anything we've we saw in World Cup qualifying and I think it took a little bit to adapt to that and I think in our pressing too, kind of in midfield, our front three would go and press and Estacchio would, would look to press higher up the pitch too. And then Uruguay would sometimes just play around Sam, Sam Piet and find gaps in midfield and exploit it and play really quickly through those areas and then get the front two on the ball 
Darwin Nunez and, and Luis Suarez. You know, that 3-4-3 three, three for Canada, there is only two in that midfield area. And I do wonder, because I think they could have used it in the opening quarter of the match. I do wonder if Herdman does move to a midfield trio come Qatar, especially for a midfield like Croatia. So I, I think Canada were taught a few lessons in, in the fact of how clinical Uruguay were. I mean, they really had two chances and two goals. Right, whereas, and and we'll get to this, but Canada started, when they did grow into the game, really did create chances and had moments and half chances to get back into the game, but they didn't take them. And in the end, you know, it's one thing to hang with these teams, it's another thing to beat them. And that's a, I think, lesson that, that Canada learned. And, and you can have a really good kind of three quarters of the match, but in that opening quarter, if you give up these chances against a, a team like Uruguay with clinical players like Darwin Nunez, you could put yourself in a real hole that makes it very difficult to back get back into. So there were lessons that Canada were taught. Yeah, you mentioned earlier, though, the two chances, two goals for Uruguay. How disappointed do you think John Herdman will be with the goals, with those two goals that, you know, the Canadian defense really conceded? Yeah, yeah, definitely a, a, you know, a reality check in the sense that Canada on, on the first goal gave away a free kick that they didn't necessarily need to and were punished on it. But the second goal, you know, it's off a throw and it's a little one-two and then Atacube slips and that gives Suarez enough time to pick out Darwin Nunez at the back post. So it's these sort of little mistakes that you may get away with in CONCACAF, right? But when you're dealing with people like Darwin Nunez, they will punish you. And it, it just shows that we can have large portions of the game where we're really happy with the way that we're playing, but moments and little mistakes can ultimately end up being big mistakes and, and hurt our chances at getting results against the bigger teams. So... Herdman, I'm sure, and and the players were definitely very disappointed with those two goals they gave up early on. Yeah, despite the rough start, though, Canada really fighting hard after, you know, conceding two, I would I would kind of say avoidable goals. How impressed were you that Canada really responded in such a fashion? And do you think they maybe deserved a goal? Yeah, I think they did deserve a goal for for what they showed, and. I think you have to give Canada a lot of credit for a lot of these players haven't played a tier one international opponent like Uruguay. And the the fact that they didn't kind of get into their own shell after going down 2-0 or they didn't totally change their identity and started doing things that don't necessarily uh, are, aren't necessarily part of their philosophy you know, I think that really stuck out to me. And Christian Jack said it on, on One Soccer at halftime. They stuck they stuck to their identity, Canada, when going down 2-0. And that's something that I think you see the belief and sort of mental toughness in this team and the togetherness that they went down 2-0 against Uruguay. They had a 
bad start to the match, but they stuck to their plan and grew their way into the match and improved. And I think they they started to control the game and controlled the game up until the end and should have been rewarded for it. But some of the play from Alfonso Davies, I just want to highlight. Finding little pockets between the lines and breaking the midfield line of Uruguay and running at that back line. It opened up gaps for others and it it gave it, it was key in Canada's buildup and created some some chances. Uh, obviously you you know there were times where Alfonso Davies could have moved the ball a bit a bit quicker and been a bit more decisive in those moments, but some of his playing Canada's buildup was really good. And the front three, you saw it with Jonathan David, Cal Laren got involved, just needed to to finish his chances. He had a brilliant chance that in the first half that normally with him ends up in the back of the net after some great play from from Davies. But the front three really got themselves into the game, just needed to make a count in the attacking third. And Stefan Estacchio started to run the show in there. I thought he was brilliant over these two matches. Yeah, and I th- I think Canada also started to create moments in transition too. You saw it even in the second half where their pressing really improved. So their defensive organization was better. Their pressing was better. They were able to win the ball back a bit quicker, make it more difficult for Uruguay to create those transitions through midfield. And Canada, from their pressing, were able to create a few transitions themselves, but the front three just didn't quite make it count. That was that was disappointing. And they also improved in their build-up play playing out from the back because at, at the start of the game, there were transitions that Canada gave up through some errors playing out from the back. And that's something, too, for Canada that you have to be very careful with because Croatia, Belgium, they're strong transitional teams. So, again, very difficult start to the match, but after that, it was good from Canada, and they, they should have been rewarded. Yeah, one player, though, I have to talk about is Ishmael Kone. There was a bit of an impact from him. What role do you think he plays in Qatar with this really stacked midfield of Canada? Yeah, I think I think Kone's a lock for Qatar. I felt he was absolutely brilliant. He was good in both matches, but the second one against Uruguay in particular, his cameo off the bench, was something. His confidence on the ball, he plays with almost... He's got... He's got an elegance about him on the ball in that midfield and, and just oozes confidence. And uh, yeah, his his technical ability and, and range of passing is, is awesome. And he's going to be a big part of this midfield moving forward. But also what I liked in his cameo off the bench against Uruguay, watch him without the ball too. He was very good. And he he has cemented a place in Qatar for me. And I think that he's going to play minutes off the bench. I think he has a chance to start a match, but I think he'll definitely play a part off the bench because he he brings something totally different that others in Canada's midfield don't. And especially if Canada need a goal and are pushing, he is one of the first players that Herdman will turn to. So I think he's built real trust there. And I think he's an absolute lock to go to Qatar and have a role, a significant role. Right. Last thing before we move on from Canada, 
we do have to talk about the formation. You know, in this game against Uruguay, you saw a lot of the time Davies kind of floating around in the attacking midfielder slot. But do you think Canada stick with the 3-4-3 and the front three of Laren, David, and Davies? Or do you think they should switch it up? I I wonder if John Erdman does. You know, I could see the the 3-4-3 against Morocco. But against Belgium and Croatia, I really wonder, especially Croatia, I really do wonder if Canada goes to that, goes to a midfield trio. I think that could be beneficial because Belgium, Croatia, those two midfields are brilliant. And watching them in the Nations League over this international break, they're going to be difficult to handle and and again kind of it's difficult with two in there and and you don't want Canada to be out outnumbered in that sense and have have difficulties dealing with the transitions like we saw against Uruguay so while I think Canada are extremely comfortable in the in the 3-4-3 and Laren Davies David it suits them in that front three but I do wonder if Canada does look to more of a midfield trio against Belgium and, and Croatia could be beneficial. What I will also say is I I would I I think this has been a solid window for Canada. You know, I think they were tremendous versus Qatar and I think versus Uruguay they th- there were some realities, a few reality checks for Canada which are good uh, to get those in now. But I think ultimately you have to feel good about the way that they controlled the match, responded, stuck to their identity, the chances that they created. And you really do feel like in 90 minutes, that gap can be closed. Canada are going to give themselves a chance. While competing with these teams and beating them is two different things, I think you can have a lot of confidence in that Canada will at least scare these teams and give them problems. So I think there's a real excitement about the World Cup and can't wait. Yeah, it was an absolute pleasure covering the Canadian men's national team. But now let's see the boys in Qatar and let's move on to Chelsea. Now, Chelsea against Crystal Palace now, shifting back to the Premier League. It feels like we haven't covered the Premier League in a really long time, Adam, but we need to have some thoughts on Crystal Palace this season so far. What should we expect from this team? Yeah, so I I think Crystal Palace are in 16th. They've won one of six games, but I don't think they've, they've been poor. You have to understand they've played Liverpool, City, and Arsenal already. And in those matches... They were great against Liverpool, could have won the game. Zaha had multiple chances. And against Man City, I felt they were really good in the first half, but then Erling Haaland showed up in the second. So I I think Crystal Palace won't be a pushover here. And and I think they're a mid-table team. They're not going to finish 16th. Um, I think that's more due to the, the difficulty of their schedule. But I, I expect, and, and one thing that's been a bit of a, a pattern against City and Liverpool this year, they've gone into a 5-4-1. So obviously Patrick Vieira kind of has them a lot more on the front foot than Roy Hodgson 
did. Uh, they're a bit more possession-based now, Crystal Palace. But against the bigger teams, they, they don't mind being a bit more pragmatic and using the threat in transitions. And something that's worked in particular is playing Zaha up top instead of Edward or Mateta. And then you kind of got Eze on the left, who whenever he cuts inside, Zaha can make his runs in behind a higher line and try to cause problems. So I do I do think Pierre, uh, Vieira might go with something like that, similar to what we saw against Liverpool and City, especially because of how kind of tack-minded Potter's setup is. And it'll be something that Chelsea will have to deal with. Yeah, definitely need to watch out for Wilfred Zaha and their counterattack. You know, when they played City, they were up 2-0. I was like, oh my goodness, we're going to lose. And then, thankfully, our cheat code, Erling Haaland, came in and saved the day. But how do we expect Chelsea to set up? And how, how do we stop Wilfred Zaha and his really quickness and his pace and Crystal Palace's counterattacks? Yeah, I, I expect Chelsea to set up... I think for them, I, I see them going with the back three. I see the the three in midfield again, Mason in kind of that deeper role. Obviously, N'Golo Kante is back, which is awesome. So he will play a part in the upcoming games, which will hopefully make us a bit difficult, a bit more difficult to hit in transition, which is great. But using those those higher wingbacks to, to press up onto Crystal Palace High and make it difficult for them playing out from the back is is something that Chelsea can can look to do and really stop those transitions and making it difficult for Zaha to get service. Because the thing is, with Crystal Palace, is that when you do play Zaha up top, you don't really have as much of the focal point, so you can't really go longer to him a lot. You kind of always have to put it in behind or you're getting into his feet and you know it it does Crystal Palace will probably look a bit more often to play out from the back and that does give Chelsea the opportunity to then go and press you you have to watch Joachim Anderson who's very good playing out from the back and he's someone you want to get a lot of pressure on so I think Chelsea's defensive organization is and pressing is key and I, I think that's key to stopping Zaha and limiting those those transitions and the back three all obviously have to be really alert. I don't imagine Aspie playing in that back three. I think alongside Thiago Silva, we need a bit more pace there if Zaha is going to play up top. And, uh, you know, Fofana or Koulibaly should come into, into the mix there. One more thing to watch out for Crystal Palace is they are quite good on set pieces as City saw. Right. One thing we got to talk about, though, is Broya and if he should start this match. You know, he's been getting some minutes here and there, but I think this is a good game for him to maybe start. What kind of threat do you think he could bring compared to the other Chelsea uh, attackers? Yeah, for, for me, Broya should start this match, and I've been calling for him to start. And I think a lot of Chelsea fans have because every time he's come off the bench, he's made an impact. And I I think he could he could be a threat in these games uh, against Crystal Palace. I think his presence in the box, his physicality against players like Anderson and Gehi, 
I think he can he can be a real sort of menace and someone to hopefully get on the end of Reese James crosses. So I think I think he's deserved a, he deserves a start. I really do. And I think also Graham Potter will will want to see maybe what he's what he's got with Broya and how he kind of fits into his system. So I would I would really like to see Broya start and I think he deserves it. Yeah, can't wait for this game. Premier League is back, baby. And hopefully Chelsea can pick up the dub against Palace. Now, we do need to talk about a very, very important game for Chelsea against AC Milan in the Champions League, which for me is a must-win game for Chelsea, but I want to know your opinion since you're the diehard Chelsea fan here. Is this a must-win game for them? I don't think must-win, just because... I mean, after this, there's three more games. There's nine points available. And as much as we didn't win either game against Dinamo Zagreb and Salzburg, Chelsea really should next time around in the reverse fixtures. So I think it's a must that Chelsea get something out of these two games against Milan. Whether it's a win or a few draws, That that's a must. But I don't think this game has is a must win. Mathematically, it's not. And I think, you know, you'd expect Salzburg and Dinamo Zagreb to also maybe take points off of each other. So it could be a case of the point total for coming second not really being super high. Uh, Especially if then Milan go and beat Dinamo Zagreb and Salzburg in their reverse fixtures. So I don't think it's necessarily a must win. Uh, but I think these next two games against Milan are must-get points matches. And, and you'd like to, to win one, and hopefully, you know, you'd like to get points in both. Yeah, I think Chelsea definitely do need somewhat of a result, though, because, I mean, their Champions League start has been really shaky. And especially if you don't get a result against Palace, then this will definitely need to be a must-get result to really boost their morale, because... I think Chelsea kind of need it right now. But one player for AC Milan we need to talk about is Rafael Liao. And do you think, would you like to see Chelsea kind of push for a deal for this guy next summer? Because he's been really good for Milan. And how important is it for Chelsea to kind of limit his attacking threat? So yeah, I, I'm a big fan of, of Rafael Liao. I think he's he's been great for Milan since making his move from Lille. And I think he's going to be a, a massive player going forward. And I would love to see him in the Premier League, obviously, with Chelsea. So I would like to see Chelsea have a go for him. There were there was rumors this summer, but Milan were asking for a lot, like over $100 million. And obviously, Chelsea had so many players to sign uh, to fill a lot of holes, so... It was quite difficult, but definitely, you know, next summer I would love to see Chelsea push for push for Rafael Leao. I think I think he would suit the Premier League and I think he could be a, a massive signing for Chelsea. In terms of his threat, uh, uh, he's the he's the big threat for AC Milan, right? And I think, you know, playing alongside Giroud probably helps him. In terms of it, Giroud gives them a real focal point, someone you could play off of. Uh, the wingers love playing with Giroud for that reason. And 
I don't mean to pick on Aspie, but I don't think this is the game where you where you start him in that role because of the the pace and and trickery and power that layout does have. So I think I think Koulibaly, Fafana, one of them should play a part. I think Koulibaly can you know can deal with him, but definitely I think with Leao you want to minimize his his one-on-one opportunities. You want to have multiple bodies around him and and make it difficult for him uh to get one-on-one and and make it difficult for Milan to create transitional moments to get him one-on-one. So I, you know, if Chelsea can handle his threat, they're, you know, gives them a much better chance of winning this game. Yeah, expect AC Milan to kind of line up in a 4-2-3-1 with Leo on the left side, but playing really closely with Olivier Giroud with their threats in transition. And expect expect Wesley Fofana to, or Koulibaly to start this match instead of Aspilicueta. As you mentioned, we do need the pace to stop Leal. Now... You're starting 11 prediction, Adam, because this is a very important game for Chelsea. Yeah, so my uh, my starting 11, I've got Edward Mendy in goal. I think when he returns back from his injury, he's the starter. I think Kukurea will stay in the back three. Thiago Silva in the middle. And I'll go with Koulibaly at right center back. And then... The midfield three, I have Jorginho and Golokante and Mason Mount in that deeper role, which we talked about. He looked really good against Salzburg in that deeper role. I'd like to see more of it. Reese James on the right as the right wing back. I have Sterling lined up as, as the left wing back still. I think this is something we could potentially see. So that that's something to watch and, and something I'm I'm excited to watch. And then I I also have a bombing and Havertz then up top. I think Havertz, I want to see more of him as kind of this second striker, number 10. I think this I think it's his best position. A lot of you know talk has been over the his time at Chelsea about what's Kai Havertz's best position. And I do think it's really kind of always been that second striker number 10 role. So hopefully. Potter's going to use utilize him there. Hopefully, there's something that really gets the best out of him, uh, and I want to see him more in this in in this role. So that would be my eleven. It's it's definitely a very exciting game, defending City A champions, Milan, and uh, you know obviously with big for threats like Rafael Leal. So really exciting. Yeah, I've gone for a very similar starting 11. I've kind of gone for, you know, the three at the back, but kind of like a 3-4-1-2 where Mason Mount plays a little bit deeper. It's not like a 3-5-2, but Mount kind of plays like a center attacking mid kind of style. So I have gone for Mendy in goal. I've gone for, I have gone for Koulibaly, Thiago Silva, and Fofana. I could definitely see uh, Marco Correa playing on the left-hand side of the back three as well. I have gone for Sterling as the left wing back as well. I mean, I'm a City fan, so I know how versatile Sterling really is. You know, he played on the left-hand side for City for a long time before switching to the false nine position. And then I have also gone for Jorginho. I've gone for Kante, and I've gone for Mason Mount as the attacking midfielder. 
gone for Reese James on the right, and I have gone for Aubameyang and Kai Havertz up front. Should be a very interesting game for both Chelsea and AC Milan, but go Chelsea. We will be back next week to recap games against Palace and AC Milan. We'll be previewing the matches against Wolverhampton Wanderers and the reverse fixture against AC Milan. All right. Thank you for listening, guys, and go Chelsea.